You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Amen. So we're Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 31 tonight. Our message is titled, Ehud, the Unlikely Savior. And, uh, you know, I have four children in my family that start with names with the, the letter E. And so Ehud, you know, he's come up a few times in family discussions, all right? And all of my kids always thank me, you know, Dad, thank you for not naming me Ehud. But uh, we've happened onto one of those sensational stories tonight, the headliners of the Old Testament, if you will. And for some Christians, it's a story they would rather not admit was a part of the Bible at all. Uh, And that's because it's messy, and you'll see that very soon. It's a messy story. So if you think about it, there are many passages in the Old Testament which leave Christians scratching their heads and feeling a little bit embarrassed. I can think of several uh, uh, moments in the book of Leviticus where I was like, you want me to teach this, Lord? You know, and, and we're talking about skin rashes and all kinds of weird stuff, and, and it was interesting. But we have to remember something, and, and it's that way for some Christians, uh, but it's not that way for all Christians, and, and that's definitely true of me. I've learned as I study the Bible, the longer I study the Bible, the longer I walk with God, the more I'm able to trust Him and to realize He has a plan, He has a purpose in everything that He does. But many of us realize the Old Testament is a record of what really happened. And, and real life is messy, isn't it? I'm sure here tonight, represented by you guys, are some really sticky, messy situations. If we were to begin to talk about our families, if we were to begin to talk about things that have happened even in our own lives, and errors we've made over the years. Life is messy. And the Old Testament is like a newspaper. It reports the facts. It lays them out there for us to see, and all along the way, it reminds us that Hey, God is in the middle of the messiness of our lives too. God is not afraid to get his hands dirty. He's not afraid to step in and to talk to us in, at, at our level. And I love that about God. We have a God who is so good. He's so involved. And he cares so much about the intricate details of our lives. Especially when it comes to his kids. That he doesn't matter, it doesn't matter to him what the situation is, he gets in it. The Old Testament shows us this again and again. And in our passage tonight, some people are going to be hard pressed. If you just read this in your devotions, you might be hard pressed to come up with, well, what's the lesson here? What, how are we going to pull anything out of this? Should we talk about how to make, conceal, and use daggers effectively? Uh, should we talk about uh, perhaps. Watch out for the southpaw and, and, and southpaw strategies. Should we talk about this as the beginning of Israel's targeted killing program, perhaps? Which, by the way, I'm reading a book right now called Rise and Kill First, and it's a book that's completely about Israel's targeted killing program, which they've had for uh, ever since they were rebirthed as a nation. It's, it's quite amazing. So uh, maybe they took some of their cues from this story that we're about to read tonight. But either way you slice it, This story might seem like it would be difficult to find spiritual lessons. But I believe that as we get into the text tonight, in fact, I'm confident that you and I are both going to be blessed tonight. Because Ehud, the left-handed man, 
becomes God's unlikely Savior, and he has a lot to teach us. The main idea, the main theme that I want you guys to get out of this message tonight is that God compassionately saves his people in their sufferings. Our God is a God of mercy and compassion, and he saves those that cry out to him in the midst of their affliction. Guys, I know that there are people here tonight that are suffering. I have very close friends that are suffering major things in their lives right now. We all know somebody who is afflicted. We live in a fallen world, a broken world. All of us will face suffering, but God is a God who in the midst of that affliction, when we cry out to him, is waiting to save. He's waiting to come to us. We need to remember that. Tonight, Our first point is the slavery under Moab, verses 12 through 14. Pick it up with me in Judges chapter 3, verse 12. It says, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember, you know, with that phrase, it should bring to your remembrance that the book of Judges is is really a look into the cycle of sin. That, that happens in the life of every human being, our, 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 our lives. So, uh, continuing there in verse 12. So, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Wow. Notice here as we begin the context of our story, it's laid out for us in these verses. And and, uh, once again, we see that this story begins with the children of Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the Bible again portrays for us that God is sovereign in control of the affairs of history. He raises up the oppressor and he raises up the Savior. But In any case, God is always moving history towards his plan, carrying out his purposes. Guys, if you're watching the news, we know that what's happening in Israel is extremely important for biblical prophecy. President Trump has been raised up, I believe, by God. As much as I don't like the guy sometimes, okay? And I'm going to be honest with you. But as, as, as much as we may not agree with some of the things he's done, God has raised that man up. And the things that he's doing in regards to Israel right now are amazing, incredible. We have to realize that. But our loving God can use even the wicked things of this world to accomplish his plan in the lives of his children and to carry history towards his purposes. And that's what we see happening here in Judges chapter, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, once again. God is raising up an oppressor, and he will use that oppressor to accomplish his goal, and then he will raise up a savior to deliver his people from that oppressor. Now, the city of Palms there that it's talking about in these verses, that is Jericho, uh, and, and Jericho was known for an oasis of palm trees and other plants as well that produced a lot of food for the region there. It was a strategic location. That was the first place that the children of Israel conquered on their way into the promised land. Now, also note that the time of servitude, this time, was uh, uh, 18 years. 
Now, under Othniel, it had taken eight years of servitude before they cried out. Now, they've gone for 18 years before they cry out to the Lord. Notice that there's a progression there. And and that's always the progression of sin. Sin will deceive you, and it will harden your heart, and it will take you further than you want to go, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. That is the deal with sin. Now, the Moabites in this passage, they're the descendants of Lot. That's, one of, uh, uh, that's Abraham's cousin. And, before, or, and, and therefore, they're, they're distant relatives of the Israelites. But also, you see two other people groups here that are ganging up and coming against Israel, and it's the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Now, Moab and Ammon, they're brothers. Or, I'm sorry, they're uh, uh, cousins. And they both are descendants of Lot. Uh, if you remember, Lot had an incestuous relationship with two daughters in the book of Genesis after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, the Bible also reports that for us. And, and so therefore, they, they, they were the descendants of Lot, but also the Amalekites. They're the descendants of, the, of, of Ishmael. Remember Abraham's first son through Hagar when he decided to take matters into his own hand and try to fulfill God's promise in his flesh. And so Amalekites in the scriptures always are going to represent the flesh. Israel was destroyed to, or or was instructed to completely cut them off and to have no dealings with them. Great advice for us as Christians today. Great advice that we, that that when we're dealing with our Amalekite, which is our flesh, hey, we got to choke it out, we got to cut it off, we got to leave it behind. And, 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 and so Ammon and Moab, they actually are going to represent for us um, a people who are opposed to the ways of God, which are always going to be righteous ways. And they, they represent to us a people that are opposed to God's followers. Now, I'm reminded right now in this passage of the sexual revolution that has been taking place in our country and in our world today. Some of you have followed that in the news, you've seen it, but that sexual revolution which is trying to take uh, uh, lifestyles that God clearly uh, states are sinful and make them normal today, and, and they're throwing that in our face and they're trying to shove it down our throats, and, and yet all of the evidence, both natural, spiritual, and, 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 and everything else, it points against that being normal. And it points against that being good for someone. And, 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 and yet, that's what we see happening today. And that, that revolution is backed by people who, like Moab and Ammon, are of low morals. And they oppose God. And they oppose His followers. But the sexual revolution, they have a strategy. And part of that strategy has been to infiltrate many churches and denominations in America and around the world. In fact, we know that the Anglican Church just this week was in the news. There are two bishops in the Anglican Church, their own church, that are calling for the Church of England to be held accountable for their their discrimination and to to have to uh, basically live by the discrimination laws that already exist there in England, that they would have to, you know, basically not be able to uh, uh, only hire employees that are, are lining up with their religious beliefs, their religious affiliation. So very dangerous because they're attacking religious freedom. But not only that, we know that the Methodist church, they have a special synod called for 2019 where they're going to be voting on these very things. They've, they've proposed three solutions for the church. 
And, and one of those solutions is that they would become an affirming church that just accepts this and brings it into, into, into normality within the Methodist church. And that would be to go directly in contrast to the book of, di- of discipline, which was established by the founder, John Wesley, of that movement. Not only that, it's happening in so many of the denominations, the, the, the Episcopalians, the, the Methodists already talked about that. There's very few that are standing strong in this, but we've noticed this movement. It's attacking the people of God. Why? Because if they can get us to capitulate, man, it's, it's, it's smooth sailing from there on out. There's going to be no one to speak the truth and to prick the conscience and to, and to be opposed to uh, the, morals, the moral standards of our nation being lowered. And so I believe that we as a church and the people of God, we can learn a lesson from Israel's history. I believe that if we will take a page from their playbook, I think we would do well. And what page am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about what we see in verse 15. Judges chapter 3, verse 15. It says, But when the children of God, or children of Israel, cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. I'm convinced, church, that we need to be crying out to the Lord for our community, for our state, for our country, as well as for our world. We need Christians today more than ever that are willing to join the PTA and get on the city council and be a judge for our uh, county and, and all of those different areas and be lawyers and teachers and doctors and, 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 and whatever it is. I mean, you could, be, uh, you could be doing anything as long as you're doing it with the heart that Jesus has called me to shine his light, to, to be the salt of this world, to be different and, and to fight against the tide that is this world is, is, is trying to ram down our throats. We need to cry out to the Lord. Notice there in verse 15, once again, there's no connection in verse 15 to repentance in their cry for help. It's just a cry that comes from the oppression of the enemy. And God, once again, shows his mercy, his compassion, his grace, and patience. That's the good news, church. Don't lose sight of that. That's the main theme of our message tonight, that God is a God of compassion, and, and, and God loves people. God hates sin, but he loves people, and, and he is willing, even when there's no repentance connected to a cry for help, God is willing to listen, and God is willing to come and to save, and that is an important thing that we need to note about this story. And he saves people out of their afflictions, even the afflictions they bring on themselves. Praise God for that. I don't know about you guys, but I bring affliction on my own life. (laughs) My choices sometimes create suffering. But God will save us even out of our own affliction, our self-caused afflictions. Now it points this to Ehud there, who's a left-handed man for a reason. Now, this was rare to have a left-handed man and, and this would have been something that set Ehud apart from, from most, if not all, of the men around him. You see, a left-handed man in the community of Israel was uh, not in, considered to be normal. In fact, uh, uh, there, there was stipulations against him being able to serve in the, t- in the uh, tabernacle. 
And so it would have been looked down on in his time and in his culture. But let's see how God does this, how he saves. Verse 16, now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So guys, this dagger would have been about 15 to 17 inches long, about the same size as, you know, my elbow to my fist here. And there's a picture of one on the screen for you guys. That's basically what it could have looked like. Uh, I think that cross piece may be a little bit too big, but uh, that, that, that's, you'll see why in a minute. But before I go on, I want to point something else out to you. You need to remember that this story that we're about to read through has, is, is being told by an Israelite. And it's being told to other Israelites. So you have to, to understand that in order to see that there's actually humor and fun in this story. And we have to put on our Israelite glasses tonight, so to speak. Or if you will, put on your Israelite sandals. and your imagination, put yourself in their sandals and think about this story as if you were an Israelite who for the last 18 years has been oppressed and taxed to the bone by this Moabite king and his minions, okay? So they are living in extreme poverty. They're barely able to live, and, and, and they're, they're barely scraping by while they're being oppressed by this big egg-shaped man named Eglon, right? And, and, and he doesn't allow them to have much. So now remember that, and as we go through the story, you're going to get a sense that there's some pure enjoyment taking place. This is pure comedy, even hilarity from the writer as we read this story. Verse 17, so he brought the tribute, Ehud brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. By the way, Eglon is noted in scripture as having been the the sole proprietor of that description, okay? He's the only one listed in scripture as a very fat man, okay? Verse 18, and when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he, he himself turned back from the stone images that were Gilgal. You remember those were the ones that Joshua erected after they had crossed over the Jordan. And, and, and so that's where he turned around. He went back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud is taking advantage of something here. He's taking advantage of Eglon's pride, okay? Eglon, the very fat man, was also prideful. He thought he had it going for him. He thought he was in control. And so Ehud is appealing to that. He's appealing to that part of his nature that believes that, hey, I'm a special guy. I deserve secret messages, okay? And so, of course, would be the, he would be that guy that would get the secret message from Israel's higher-ups. Now, verse 20, so Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. This would have been a, a shaded rooftop, uh, mostly open air, and that would have been in order to catch as much of the breeze as possible. That was typical for houses in, in, in the ancient Near East. Uh, in, in the baking hot sun of the day, they would often go up higher, up to the rooftop where it would be uh, cooler and the breeze would be flowing, okay? And that's, an, uh, that's actually a wood carving there of Ehud's upper chamber and Ehud making his getaway. But that's giving the story away. So let's get back to it. Verse 20 says, Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. 
So he arose from his seat. Can you, get, can you believe that? The guy got up out of his seat. Verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. I'm not making this stuff up, guys. For he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Is that rated R? I think this story might be rated R, guys, for violence. I mean, that's disgusting. We're talking about a dagger. As long as is, is my fist to my elbow here, no cross piece being thrust as hard as possible into the stomach of this eggy-shaped man here, Eglon. And, and it, we should also note at this point that Eglon's name means young ox or bull. Now, as his name sounds, so too he must have been a very large man. A, a very large man. Uh, John Corson calls him his egginess, right? His egginess. But this explains why Ehud may not have been able to pull that dagger out, right? His hand thrust that dagger in and the fat closed around it. He, he lost sight of it. It was gone. Things got slippery and messy, he couldn't pull that dagger out. He probably was like, I don't need it back. I don't, I don't even want that thing back, you know. But notice that the dirt or, or the, the entrails came out. His egginess's sides just kind of spilled out. The yolk spilled. It went everywhere. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail here. But the King James Version, the King James Version puts it best. I'm not a King James Version only guy. But here, I totally agree. It puts it best. It says that the dirt came out. Okay, the dagger went in and the dirt came out. Dirt. That just means dirty stuff, okay? Now I'm going to choose to not even go further than that because some commentators believe, what, what they believe really happened here is just plain disgusting. It's too disgusting. But let's finish this intriguing story. Verse 23. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, ah, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. That's the polite way, by the way, of saying that they thought he was on the porcelain throne, the restroom, the toilet, the WC, whatever you and yours might call that room. So they waited till they were embarrassed, okay? And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Can you imagine? I mean, they're just sitting there going, man, what did this guy have for lunch, you know? It's getting, it's getting awkward. Therefore they took the key and opened them. And there was their master, fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sirah. So did you guys notice how detailed and how funny that story is when you think about it? I mean, it's a hilarious story. And, and when you realize that the writer of this story, he's really relishing in this and he's, he's drawing out the humorous parts. I think it's awesome. But it, it is kind of gross. There is a gross part of this story when Ehud does his dirty work. But even that would have brought a sense of relief to the Israeli hearers and to the readers of this story. I'm not... I'm not trying to be punny there, it's just, it's just coming out. But in those days, it was shameful to be a left-handed man. Remember we talked about that? 
In fact, in the Middle East today, the left hand is still considered to be an offensive hand. You don't wave with your left hand. You don't touch anybody with your left hand. Uh, because normally, uh, you only use that, you use your left hand for a certain thing, which I think you're figuring out. And because of that usage of your left hand, when you use the restroom, you don't, you don't go around waving that hand or touching people with that hand. It's just considered to be offensive. But I imagine that Ehud is asking God why he had been made the way he had all of his life until this day. Can you imagine a left-handed man and, and looking and, and thinking, man, why am I like, why? God, why did you make me this way? And yet, on that day, in this story, he's probably thanking God at this very moment. God, thank you for making me a left-handed man. So that when I came through the door, the bodyguards of Eglon, they, they would have checked the left side because that's where they would have drawn a weapon from, a right-handed man. But he had that, that dagger disguised under the garments there along his thigh, and he was able to just take that out and thrust it into the stomach of Eglon. And so he's thanking God today for being a left-handed man. You know what Ehud found out? Is that God had a purpose in making him left-handed. That all he needed to do was to make himself available to God with his left-handedness. And God would take that and use it to do awesome things. You know what? God never makes mistakes. He never makes a mistake. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he knows exactly what he was doing when he made you, when he formed you. Turn over to Psalm 139 tonight in your Bibles. I love this psalm because David reminds us that God is intricately involved in even the details of creating us. And he doesn't make mistakes. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my, my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me. And your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. And then this is the part I want to concentrate on. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have been my unformed substance. I've seen my unformed substance. And in your book were, were, were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. 
Guys, we live in a society that's asking the question, when does life begin? (laughs) The Bible tells us God was there. God saw our unformed substance. Life begins at the earliest point of conception in the womb, according to Psalm 139. And guess what? God is there. He's in that process. He's forming and shaping. And you are skillfully wrought. Now, it doesn't matter if you feel that you're defective. God made you wonderfully. And he made you with a purpose and a plan. And so instead of buying into the lie and the deceitfulness that Satan is trying to sell you and say, no, you're not good enough or you weren't made to be this or you're not, you're not really this, hey, you need to, to, to shut out the lie of Satan and listen to what God says. God has a purpose for every single person in this world. And he has made you and fitted you together and ordained your days. And he loves you. And, and he's in love with the real you, you genuinely, who you are. That's what blesses God. Not you trying to be like somebody else or trying to change your gender or, or, or be somebody that you're not. God loves the real you, and that's who he made you to be. Are you available for service? Or are you feeling sorry for yourself? Are you not giving the glory to God for the way that he skillfully made you and brought you into this world? Remember, just like Ehud, the left-handed man, the unlikely savior, God had a purpose and used him when he thought that maybe he was a reject or had been cast off. But that wasn't the truth. Watch what God can do. Verse 27, and it happened that when he arrived, back in Judges chapter 3, when he arrived, Ehud, that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. And then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Here we see another great lesson. Is there anybody here tonight that feels called to lead? Maybe you're a, a team leader at work. Maybe you're a leader on your football team or volleyball team. Maybe you're a leader in your home. But, but anybody that has been called to be a leader can learn a lesson from uh, Ehud's life tonight. You see, as skilled and as smart as Ehud was, he still couldn't defeat the Moabites alone, could he? He needed help. And so he went and he asked others to follow him. And he does it, notice the way he does it there in verse 28, he does it in an encouraging way. He points them to the fact that God has delivered them from their enemies. You know, there's some, several marks of a good leader that we see here. A good leader is a person who knows they need others, that they're not above the team, they're, they're part of the team. And, and we also see here that, that a good leader is someone who acknowledges where their strength and power and deliverance really comes from. A good leader is going to acknowledge, hey, I I couldn't do any of this if it wasn't for God. I couldn't be here without God. And God's the one who's going to, God is the one who's delivered us. And so let's go. And he, notice that he also, thirdly, the third thing about a good leader that we see here is he points him to God. 
He actually, he says, look guys, follow me. God's delivered the enemy into our hands. And I believe that the Israelites followed Ehud here because he was a leader who was worthy to be followed. He'd gone ahead of them in the fight, hadn't he? He had, he had gone ahead and taken the life of the Moabite king. He'd taken the guy who was in power. He'd taken him out. Guess what? Good leaders don't find followers unless they're leading people in ground that they've already conquered, ground that they've already covered, ground that they know that they can lead others in. Now, I'm not saying that we should never take ventures of faith and step out into unknown territory. Of course we have to do that. Of course we're going to do those things. But Ehud was a good enough leader that the people felt, hey, we can follow this guy. He's been there, and he's done that, and we can, we can trust him. I love that Ehud didn't just command, but he asked them to follow him, and they did it. And, and guess what? Together, working together along with the Lord, they brought rest to the land of Israel for 80 years. That was the longest period of rest in the book of Judges, get that, from this guy Ehud and, and his followers. You know, I love what Pastor David Guzik had to say about this. He says that Ehud is a dramatic example of how in the Lord, one man can make a difference and how God will call others to work with that one man. I like that quote. We have a dramatic example here of how God can raise up one man and then if others will, will follow that man and, 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 and if they work together, they can accomplish some pretty awesome things for the kingdom of God. Guys, that's my dream. That's my dream as a pastor. As the pastor here at Calvary Chapel of Paris, my dream is that there would, that, 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 that many godly men would surround me in this venture of faith, that we've been called to be a light in our community. We've been called to be a light in this world. We've been called to send people out to bless other fellowships and other churches and, other, and, and even to start new churches. Because I don't care how many churches there are in this community, there is way more people that don't have Jesus Christ in their hearts. And we have a big purpose. We have a huge purpose for us in, in this church. And so, guys, if, if we will uh, uh, follow this example tonight, I believe that God will bless us and do great things through that as well. Now, before we move on, I want to point out that Jesus has essentially done the same thing, right? Jesus has gone before us. Jesus defeated sin and death. Jesus has delivered you and me from the power of the penalty and the presence one day on that final sanctification day of sin and death. And he says to you and to me tonight, hey, follow me. Follow me. Remember the verse, Luke 9, 23. If anyone, anybody here desires to come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. Let's follow Jesus. Let's finish out our chapter tonight with Shamgar, the unknown striker. The unknown striker there in verse 31. You'll see why I call him that. Pretty obvious, huh? After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. You know, I don't, I'm not current with who the UFC heavyweight champ is right now, but I guarantee you he has not 600 
victories under his belt. I guarantee it. Shamgar is the man, is what I'm trying to say, guys. We don't really know too much about this guy. Shamgar, the son of Anath. All we can speculate is that he was probably not an Israelite. Get that. This guy is probably not Israeli. And, and the reason commentators believe that is because of his name. His name is, has nothing to do with Hebrew. It's not a Hebrew name. It's not an Israeli name. And, and, and the son of Anath, that could, that could even be a, a Canaanite deity there that, that, that they're making reference to with that word Anath. We don't know. All we can speculate, he's probably not an Israelite. What we do know is that an ox goad is an eight-foot slender piece of wood with a sharp pointed tip on one end and then a spade on the other end. It was, it was a staff of eight feet long, would have been about uh, between uh, four and six inches round there, and, and, and it was just used to kind of guide the oxen along, to goad them along. And then it would, the other end, the spade, that was used to clean off the dirt that got accumulated on a plow. And so with this ox goad, this simple ox goad, Shamgar, was, it was in the hands of God a deliverer. He was in God's hands somebody that was used to take out 600 of the enemy. And, and we don't know much more than that. But I, I think we're seeing the pattern. I, I hope that you're starting to understand the pattern here tonight. I, I hope that you're getting the picture. God, in the Bible, will repeatedly use ordinary men and women with whatever they have in their hands, whatever skills, whatever experience you have, God is looking to use you if your heart is loyal to Him. When they surrender their lives to Jesus, when they give what they have to God, God takes them and, and uses their lives for extraordinary purposes. But that's the big question, isn't it? Will you set aside your personal ambition? Will you set aside your personal dream and, and the idea that you're living for yourself? And will you say, Lord, I'm going to take my skills, I'm going to take my life experience, I'm going to take whatever I have, and however you can use me, God... Here I am. You know, that's what the Bible means when it talks about the foolishness of this world. God takes the foolish things and he puts, he, he uses them to, to put down the, the things that think they're wise and intellectual and rich and have it all together. Just think of some of the other examples that are in the Bible, guys. Think of, well, here we studied Shamgar tonight. Or, well, we'll start with Ehud. Ehud, a left-handed man, used a dagger. Had a dagger in his hand that he made. God used it. Shamgar used an ox goad, killed 600 men. Jael, we're about to study her in, in, in the coming weeks. Jael used a hammer and a tent peg to kill a captain of an army. Gideon used pitchers and torches to rout the holy Midianite army. Samson had the jawbone of a donkey in his hand when he slaughtered 1,000 Philistine warriors. David picked up a stone out of a creek bed and put it in his sling and killed a giant. And then there was the boy with the five loaves and the two fish who said, here, Jesus, you can take my lunch. And Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he distributed it to a crowd of 5,000 people. My life... In my hands, loser, <laughs> sinner, 
nothing. But my life in Jesus' hands, blessed and broken, man, God can use that. God can use that for his kingdom. Your life, blessed and broken in the hands of Christ, hey, God wants to use you too. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, 29, the verses will be on the screen, but this is that biblical principle. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Or to, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. You know what the most foolish thing is that God used? A wooden cross. God used a wooden cross upon which Jesus Christ, his only son, died and saved the world, to save the world. And all who will put their faith in Jesus will be saved. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Listen tonight, church. Ehud and Shamgar and Jesus Christ, hey, they've shown us the way. They've given us the invitation, follow me. The Lord has delivered the enemy into our hands. Hey, are we going to follow? Are we going to follow him? That's up to you. That's up to you. God's going to let you answer that question with your life. Amen. Let's pray.